You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Today's guest is Rachel Cole. Rachel Cole is a certified life coach, celebrated teacher, and speaker. She has spent nearly two decades guiding people to identify, understand, and feed their truest hungers. As an eating disorder survivor herself, Rachel speaks with great wisdom, sensitivity, and authority about what it takes to live a well-fed life in the modern world. In this episode, we discuss listening to your hungers beyond the table and how to start listening to your hungers in life. What do you truly want for yourself? What makes you feel satisfied in life? I know that you will gain so much wisdom from this interview with Rachel. Enjoy. Hey, Rachel, how are you today? I'm good. Hi, Meg. It's so great to have you here. It's really great to be here. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being on the show. And, you know, one thing that I love about your work is how you make recovery and your recovery bigger than just the food story. You bring it out to talking about wise hunger and how you needed to follow the hungers of your life in order to heal. And I think that's just such a beautiful connection to healing. And so to start, I really wanted to hear about your journey and how listening to the wise hunger, as you so eloquently say, really helped you through it. So I guess it's a multifaceted question. I'd love to start from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, I think my challenges with food showed up later than they do for some people. For some people, they show up in high school. For me, it was college. I didn't really struggle with food before then. And like it is for so many people, my eating disorders were really about managing anxiety. It wasn't about vanity. It wasn't about my body. And that is in part because of, you know, body privilege I have, you know, fitting more into the Eurocentric, cisgendered ideal genetically. And when I was a sophomore, I studied abroad the second half of my sophomore year. And the re-entry was really, really stressful for me for a variety of reasons. And I managed that stress and anxiety by adopting an exercise regimen that sort of on the surface is what we're told to do, right? Mm -hmm. Quote unquote, normal, regular exercise. I was pretty militant about it. And, you know, in the process of that, discovered the calorie counter on the treadmill and the nutrition labels in the dining hall and came to see food in this really logical formulaic way that I hadn't really before and found again a lot of sort of soothing in the control of it in the order of it and you know I wasn't setting out to lose weight or change my body but 
that started to happen. And like it does for so many people that brought in praise and, you know, comments from other people and everything I was doing, you could find in a magazine as a recommended thing to do. So it didn't appear to me at the time to be all that disordered. And, you know, probably five or so months in, people started to be concerned in my life. And I really brushed them off. I thought they were crazy because, again, I could just point at a magazine in the grocery store and say, you know, I'm not doing anything different than what this is saying. And they were more concerned a little bit later. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go to the doctor, get a note that says I'm fine, and then everyone will, you know, back off. Mm. And I was really, truly shocked when the doctor was like, you're not fine. Because I, you know, had really bought into those after school special stereotypes of who gets an eating disorder and what they look like and why they do it. And, you know, I was a brunette feminist. I was like, this doesn't make sense. You know, I, I don't know how this happened. This wasn't what I was setting out to do. And it really confused me. At that point, I started working with an eating disorder specialist therapist. And, you know, unlike some people whose eating disorders are more entrenched and they don't have a desire yet to get better, I really had a desire from that realization to get better. I wasn't ready in the sense that those behaviors were really serving a purpose, a coping purpose, and I didn't have an alternative. So I wasn't ready in that sense, but I really wanted to understand this how I got here, what was going on for me, and how to get out of it. So I started working with a really amazing therapist. You know, it's just sort of luck of the draw, right? And I just happened to start working with someone whose work was deeply rooted in feminism, in early days of health at every size, in fat activism. And she definitely saved and changed my life. And at the same time, Because I was in college, I had access not only to the college library, but I had access to all the university and college libraries in the entire state. You know, I just sent away for every book I could get my hands on, on eating disorders, on feminist theory, on self-acceptance, on self-compassion, on all of these things. You know, I dove into, you know, bodies in art history, and I just became voracious in my desire to understand And so by that fall, so now we're like nine or so months into quote unquote treatment, I was not doing well. Physically speaking, I'd had some really stressful relationship things happening in my life that just, you know, devastated me. And my safe food list was pretty short. And yet the desire to get better was really strong. And everything I had been learning in therapy and through books, they already planted seeds. They were there. I was mulling them over. I was chewing on them. I was starting to sort of see through that the problem was never me. The problem was never my body. I was starting to understand diet culture and the BS behind it. And then I came back to school from the summer break and... I went to the bathroom one day and I defecated like undigested carrots. And I looked in the toilet and I was like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing to yourself? You know? Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason in that moment, I was ready. I was like ready to go through the weight gain, ready to go through the whole shebang. 
And I went in to see my therapist and I told her, I was like, you know, today's going to be a little different. Yeah. And I was ready. And she pulled out this like suggested meal plan, like a Xerox copy of this sort of suggested meal plan recovery thing. And I was just like, hold up. I have been spending, you know, this time overriding myself and my hungers and my body. And you want me to do that again. Now, caveat, right? A lot of people need that meal plan in their recovery process as a stepping stone. For me at the time, you know, and I wasn't inpatient or anything. For me at the time, I just was like, no freaking way. No way am I going to heal overriding myself with overriding myself. And so I chose what, you know, I think of as like the much harder path in the short term and the much easier path in the long term. Hmm. because you know I really didn't know what hunger felt like I really didn't know what fullness felt like plus the whole refeeding stage plus the whole legalizing foods like all of that I just kind of threw myself off the cliff with you know I had a therapist and it was really scary and really hard and I had prepared myself I think mentally for it and ultimately it was you know profoundly liberating and in that process of that deep knowing and commitment that ultimately I could return to the same body trust that I was born with, that the same hunger cues I trusted when I was born hadn't gone away. The volume had just been turned down on them and I could turn that volume back up through trial and error, through listening, that my body had some wisdom to tell me about food. It was in that process that I was like, oh, shit, you can beat that out if you need to. Um, oh shit, I can't just trust my food hungers. Oh shit. Like I can't separate this out. It reminds me a little bit of how Brene Brown talks about you can't like selectively feel that if you choose to sort of numb the hard feelings, you also sort of dim and numb the good feelings. Mm-hmm. And this sort of like, uh, if I turn on the volume for my food hungers, I kind of have to turn on the volume for all my hungers. Like it was rooted in this more profound self-trust, which was really scary, right? Scarier, I think. And yeah, that sort of set me on my path and made me feel like really, you know, dedicated and committed to this work as I healed that this was what I was here to do. And that was a long time ago. I'm 40. I was 20 then. So Wow. <laughs> wow. So there's so much there. And thank you for sharing all of that. I guess. What I'm hearing, just so I'm clear, is you spent the first nine months of recovery absorbing information, but not really taking action. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, playing, you know, devil's advocate with my therapist and like being like, you know, (laughs) pushing back. But, 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 you know, (laughs) but Oreos have no value. You know, that kind of stuff. (laughs) So what is it like? I know so many people can relate to that. So what was it like for you to really want recovery and maybe be able to intellectualize all the reasons why it's valuable, you know, after reading every book on intuitive eating and feminism? What was it like to want all of that, but not be able to take the action? hard. (laughs) I think it speaks to the amount of pain I was in. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it could have happened earlier, but there was this interruption in my treatment where I had to go home for the summer from between 
my junior and senior years of college. And, you know, it seems crazy now that you wouldn't just do distance therapy, but at the time it like really wasn't a thing. I lived out of, my parents lived out of state from where I went to college. And so they tried to line me up with like a local therapist there and a local nutritionist there. And like, I really didn't connect with either of them. I didn't like either of them. And, and again, I had some, you know, relationship stuff that was just so profoundly painful. And it's a little bit chicken and egg. Like I probably could have coped with it a lot better if I was fed, you know, but at the time the pain was really great. And I felt like I was showing up to do the work. You know, I felt like I was showing up to do what I could do. It felt like a seed growing at the speed it needed to grow at. Like it couldn't grow faster than it was. And, you know, I'm sure you know this, but like it grew faster than it does for many people for me. Like I went from diagnosis to recovery pretty quickly. Yeah, that's how it was. I think that's very comforting to think about it like a seed that is growing at the rate that's right for you. So thank you for putting it in that way. And then my other thought about your recovery process was the idea of a meal plan came up. It wasn't the right fit for you. You wanted to take the intuitive route from the get-go. What was that like? <laughs> so hard. How did you do that? Oh, it was so hard. So, you know, there were a lot of belly aches. It's a lot of not feeling good because I had all of a sudden had all these foods legalized that I had restricted. And again, never mind that I needed to, you know, refeed and gain weight back and all of that stuff. But it is true what treatment professionals tell you when they say, you know, through the legalization process, you find yourself at a place where you don't want, you know, the entire box of cereal in one sitting, which you can't imagine when you're in a starved state, but eat enough entire cereal boxes in a sitting that you're truly allowed to eat, that you're not, you know, pseudo permission, you know, that you're truly allowed to eat. And you start to figure out, oh, actually, if I can have the whole thing, like this is how much I actually want in one sitting. So yeah, a lot of not feeling good, a lot of, you know, clothing size changes in a fairly short amount of time. I would buy like the size I needed and the next size up at like Old Navy and like pants so that if they stopped fitting, I didn't have to stress. I always had like the next size in my closet. That was like a coping strategy for me because I knew, you know, I didn't know where the train was going to stop. And I can remember I had, you know, some supportive friends. I would sit in the dining hall and mealtime would be over. They would be like shutting down the dining hall and packing things up. And I would say to my friend, I actually have no idea if I'm done eating. Do you mind sitting here with me for a little longer? And, you know, and we would just sit there and chat and I would periodically check in. And, you know, it's a lot of just that learning to walk these like signals that again, the volume's really low on hunger and fullness. And so you're trying to listen more intensely. And over time, it just gets easier because you get that trial and error feedback. Oh, that time where I thought I was still hungry, turns out I wasn't. Or, oh, that time where, you know, I thought I was full, turns out I wasn't, you know, and you just every day because we eat every day, we get a chance to practice every day. And so it's like throwing yourself off a cliff every day. It was really hard. <laughs> it took a lot of bravery. I'm really proud of myself. It was really hard and it was really liberating because then I had this thing, this most precious thing, which is this fluency in the language of my body in that way. And that 
mental peace and ease around food. You know, when you're restricting, your mental real estate is just consumed. And so I, I started to get that, I started to feel quiet in my brain again, which was really helpful. Mm. Yeah. The trial and error method was what I did too. So, mm-hmm. and then I recovered mostly in college. So your story really connects mm-hmm. with how mine was mm-hmm. as well. And you're right. The body fluency that I was able to get out of that is so precise. Yeah. But people were taught to believe that we can't have that, right? That the body can't be trusted, that we have to pay someone to tell us what to eat or when to eat, or we have to put up these guardrails against our appetites. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, discovering that all of that was a lie. It's really liberating. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. So with the conversation around listening to your hungers, I assume in that process for you, when you said you turn up the volume of your physical hunger, you recognize the volume of all of your life hungers turn up as well. So that journey was not nine months. (laughs) (laughs) What are the different types of hungers you're sort of referring to just so we can make sure everyone's on the same? Whatever you're thinking of, I'm including it. It's creativity hungers. It's relational hungers. It's vocational hungers. It's environmental hungers. It's yeah, emotional hungers. It's pleasure and leisure and fun play hungers. It's all of the above. And yeah, I mean, that was a longer journey I set out on. You know, that was more of a, a spiritual quest that really was most of my 20s. And of course, continues on today because then it just becomes a life practice, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, first of all, I think one of the things that has to happen on that journey is we have to separate out the how from the what. Because I think so often we get so caught up on, I don't know how I would feed that hunger. So then we just don't acknowledge it or we don't feel it. Or we have a story like, it's not even possible to feed that hunger, so I'm just going to shove it in the back of the closet. And I really discovered that that's a mute button, and that creates this dis-ease, this sort of vague feeling of dis-ease when our hungers are sort of muted in the back of the closet. So if we can completely separate how we're going to feed it from just naming what we're hungry for as its own distinct step, that's really profound. And using a sort of Marco Polo, warmer, colder, I don't know if you ever played Marco Polo in a swimming pool, but that sort of idea of, you know, the things we're hungry for as we get closer to them, they feel warmer. The things we're not hungry for as we get closer to them, they feel colder. And using that almost somatic model, also using like the notion of an exhale, when we think about when something gives us an exhale, you know, that's no doubt something that we were hungry for are hungry for and when our chest constricts you know that's we're moving further away it's not a science it's an art you know it's not precise there's not 10 steps to it it's an ongoing relationship and inquiry and a belief that just like we deserve to be fed at the table we deserve to be fed in our lives and we deserve to take up space and we deserve to have needs and it's okay to want a lot. Mm, Well said. I would say for your story, do you remember like any of the hungers coming up, like the non-physical hungers that came up for you? And I imagine some of them were scary. 
or Uber? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So there's like a footnote in my journey, which we don't have to go into because it's a little bit of the same stuff. But I had uh, later in my 20s, I had a relapse in terms of orthorexia. Mm-hmm. And so when I was recovering from that, I was working with another amazing therapist of the same name. They both had the same name. I was working with another therapist and I was, you know, not doing well. And I remember saying to her, at that time, I would go to work and when I would get home, I would binge. And I said to her, I am aware that if somebody were waiting for me in my apartment where I lived alone and would spoon me in a platonic way, just hold me, I wouldn't feel the need to binge. Mm. And, you know, it's sort of in that realization, it's like, oh, I'm really hungry for something and it is not in the refrigerator and I have no idea how to feed it, how to, you know, meet that hunger. And I can tell you that that would satisfy me. Like that would quench the thirst. Yeah, totally terrifying. But that's that's the path. That's the process of being able to say, what I am truly hungry for is X, not Y. And that's wow. That is such a profound realization to have. And just that's why therapy is great, right? Because yeah. you say those things, like, wow, that's really profound. And I've just kind of figured something really huge out. Yeah. Process. Yeah. So how did you meet that need for like being held and being comforted and probably loved, I assume, was what you're looking for. Did you find that through your own process or was that soothed when you did get into a relationship? You know, I think it's it's a lot of layers. I can remember in the acute period of that time, I can remember when I really wasn't doing well and my therapist was like, you know, I think you need to go spend the night at a friend's house. And the thought of asking for that, of sort of intruding on someone at the time felt so like, well, I can't do that. Never mind reveal kind of what a mess I am behind the scenes. But I did, you know, while that person didn't spoon me, (laughs) you know, sleeping on their couch was its own sort of spooning and, you know, and it also was my own relationship with myself. You know, I really wasn't holding myself in that way. And yeah, I think I had to do a lot of work on my relationship with myself. And then later came relationships with others where I could, you know, more easily ask for what I needed. And I don't believe that, you know, we are islands. I don't think we can meet all of our needs. But for me at that time, I needed to really do some of that work on my own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that part of your story. It's really interesting. So for everyone listening, like how can they start to identify these hungers in life? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of different tricks and tools and exercises and practices. You know, I would imagine that many people listening are thinking right now, like, oh, shit. (laughs) I know what it is or I know what they are. I bet a lot of people, it's not that far below the surface. Sometimes I do a visualization with people where we sort of imagine there's like a banquet table full of platters and bowls and all, but it's not food in them. And we sort of imagine what they would want to be feasting on, you know, and maybe it's massage and maybe it's painting and maybe it's 
quiet and maybe it's laughter and maybe it's touch and, you know, on and on and on. It's different for every person, but really giving themselves the space to dream and imagine and even draw that banquet table and what is in those bowls and platters in this imaginary world that, you know, if you were to feast on this table and you would feel that exhale and you would feel that, like, that was so good. Just recently, actually, I started doing Artist Way morning pages. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with that, Julia Cameron, OG book. But morning pages is a great way because we're circumventing that critic, that censor, and really just getting to the truth. And sometimes there it is, like right there on the page. Like I think Elizabeth Gilbert is like, why do I keep saying I want to learn Italian every time I do my morning pages? So <laughs> that can be a great way to do it. And again, really getting in the headspace of, I do not have to know how this will happen. I do not have to know how. It's okay to just name what I'm hungry for with having no idea or even doubting that it's even possible. Mm. That's a really important, valid step. And you can just live in that. You can even say to those hungers, hey, I got no idea how we're going to be, like <laughs> none. And you matter to me and you're important to me. And I'm going to stay in relationship with you. Mm-hmm. And maybe we'll figure this out in a week and maybe we'll figure it out in 15 years and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really powerful. For those who don't know what morning pages are, can you quickly share so yeah. others are doing this? It's a practice of rewriting longhand three pages every morning for 12 weeks, just whatever is there. And you can just be writing like, I don't know what to say oh, I need to take the chicken out of the freezer. Like whatever comes across your mind is what you write down and you just keep the pen moving. And that's the practice. The practice is supposed to be done the very first thing when you wake up. I have a four-year-old, so I do them as soon as she's out the door to school. (laughs) I dream of a life where I could do them first thing in the morning. That's not where I'm at right now. So it seems really simple and it's really profound. Yeah, I've often done a very similar practice with a woman named Lori Wagner. Her business is 27 Powers, and she teaches what she calls wild writing, which has its roots in morning pages. Mm. Highly recommend it. I'm feeling inspired to give this a try. I need to know what I'm hungry for. (laughs) I love the idea of um, like the reminder that Elizabeth Gilbert kept coming up with. I want to learn how to speak Italian. This is like really random, but yeah. hungry for it. Yeah. And it's valid. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the bad news is that it's this living practice that we don't feed our hungers once and then we're done. We don't identify our hungers once and then we're done. Our life circumstances change. We change, you know, again, I'm 40 now. So, you know, and I have a kid and a marriage. And so it's been interesting just over the years to watch that core, I would call faith, have to adapt, you know, in life. Mm-hmm. But that's why, again, I say it's so important to have the permission to name the hungers before you figure out the how, because there are hungers that I have named, for example, like being held that maybe took me years to feed exactly. But because I was in relationship with them, they got fed. If I had just shoved them back in the back of the closet, I'm not sure. I would have made life choices that moved me in the direction of those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would you say to people who feel like their hungers are too great? Welcome to the club. 
I think everybody feels that way because that is what we're brainwashed to think is that we shouldn't have needs or wants. We shouldn't upset other people or rustle other people's feathers or inconvenience them. We're supposed to be small and quiet and have no needs or be self-sufficient. And that's just total bullshit. <laughs> I, I did a workshop tour across the country and once I was in a workshop and I said, does anyone know what the neediest plant is? I think I was somewhere in the Midwest and someone's like, corn, corn needs like so much. <laughs> and I was like, okay, let's be corn. Like, let's not be air plants. Let's not be succulents that can be left for like three months at a time with no water and no sun. Like, let's be the plant that needs, you know, really precise soil that's super rich in this and not rich in that and this many hours of sunlight and this much water, but not too much. Like, let's be that because we don't look at corn and think like, oh, you selfish plant, you know? So I would just say like normalize it, recognize it, that it's part of how we're conditioned and brainwashed and it's normal. And that's not how we, I mean, really think about, especially if you're somebody who has experienced an eating disorder, think about what it was like to be at your most underfed. And I don't mean weight. I mean, like you're most underfed. It's like your phone on 1%, you know, you're just like, your heart is beating, but you're not alive. Mm. And so if we don't acknowledge our hungers, if we don't feed them, we're never at that fully alive place. And we all know what it's like to be in the presence of somebody who's fully alive or even to be out at a restaurant and see someone get up to walk and go to the bathroom and look at them and be like, that person is so alive and it has nothing to do with their body size and it has everything to do with an energy. And so, yeah, it's scary to what want what feels like a lot. And I would say, what feels like a lot is a normal amount to work. Mm -hmm. It's a helpful reminder. And I know I want to tie it back actually to something you said earlier, which I've read on your website too, is that the values of kind of feminism and systemic issues kind of helped fuel your recovery. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hearing some of those oppressive, like maybe oppressive systems coming in to yeah. that notion, oh, my wants are too big or too yeah. much. Yeah, absolutely. I can't imagine recovery without rage. I don't know how anyone would do that. Personally speaking, I think that we should be really, really angry. You know, we have been taught perpetrate a war against ourselves on behalf of an enemy. We have been trained to think that we're the enemy and to perpetrate that war against ourselves in a, a whole host of different ways when all along we were never the enemy. And it's violent what has been done to women. It, it's violent to separate a child from the body trust that they're born with. It's violent to separate a child from living from the inside out to living from the outside in to thinking that they're a reflection in the mirror or they're a pant size or they're an image. It's violent. It's just violent. And so I think that the systems at play need to be brought into really clear focus and we need to take that hatred and that weapon that we have pointed towards ourselves and just turn it towards the real perpetrator, which is never our bodies and never ourselves. We have always been doing the best we could at the time. We've always been trying to take care of ourselves. Eating disorders are an attempt to take care of ourselves. But, you know, in that anger comes 
our coming back to life, coming back to our power, coming back to being fed, and then having the energy finally to working towards dismantling those systems yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and not participating in them anymore. Yeah. I think it's so eye-opening when you can finally stop blaming yourself for being in the position you're in and recognize mm-hmm. there were so many heavy pieces to the puzzle that were out. How else could it have been? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, But that's the thing though. Like when I was going through recovery, you know, it's actually interesting because I was always so pissed that it was always boiled down to, oh, you're just like influenced by the media. I was like, ah, <laughs> you know, like, it's not just that. And it is that yeah. it's both. <laughs> right. It's like, but it's funny how it gets so oversimplified and then mm. it takes providing yourself some education on everything at play. Everything. That brain. Yeah. Media literacy is a huge piece of it. You know, I tell people if we spent trillions and trillions of dollars to make you feel ashamed of having two eyebrows, you would feel ashamed of having two eyebrows. You can buy shame. Like in our society, the things people feel ashamed about, people have paid for that to happen. And so, If you currently don't feel ashamed for having two eyebrows, that's because it's not beneficial in a capitalistic patriarchal society. But it is beneficial if you feel shame about cellulite or you feel shame about eating carbohydrates or you feel shame about feeling angry or whatever. You know, so if you feel that sort of feminist guilt of like, I'm a feminist, why do I feel bad for, you know, having a belly? I should be fine with this. Well, trillions of dollars have been spent to make you feel that way. That is really powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really upsetting. And of course, it does connect back to the rage piece, which is I've been played <laughs> in a way. Like you, you start to realize that there's so many people yeah. like puppeteering groups of people into thinking and doing certain things. And it's very upsetting. That's where the like fool me once, shame on you fool me twice, shame on me. I sort of feel like the nice thing about coming to see it all clearly, to see the game, to see the systems, to see a diet by any other name is still a diet, to see it so that when a noom pops up, you're like, I get it. I get what's happening here that you played me once, but mm-mm. like, I get yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I keep thinking of this ain't my first rodeo. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Mm. Yes. And that's why I'm so grateful that people who can listen to this podcast and other sources, like other resources, they can come to that Mm. eye-opening moment. And hopefully that protects them from ever falling back into a diet or into something risky, you know, as far as harm to your body goes. Yeah. And, you know, people come to me and sometimes they say like, can I do Weight Watchers and intuitive eating? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, no, that's like actually a really easy question to answer. No, but sometimes people do need to go around the Ferris wheel one more time to understand that the Ferris wheel will always result in the same thing. Even if it looks different, it will always result in the same thing. And only you know if you're done riding. Yeah. And when you're done riding, come talk to me. And 
no shame or judgment if you're not done writing. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, that's a tough one. It's really hard. Yeah, I want to like rip everyone off the first one. <laughs> I know, I know, but it takes going around it the number of times you have to go around it and hopefully a good practitioner pointing out like, oh, look, the Ferris wheel always starts like this. And then this always happens. And then this always happens. And then this always happens. And then you always feel the call to get back on. And, you know, we're done when we're done. Yeah. And I think you had a pretty pivotal moment in your story, like you said. And I remember I had a moment where I was very much done, but it's not always so clear. Right. Sometimes it takes a little bit more trust and more of a tug of war mm-hmm. to get out of that place. Yes. As well. Yes. Yeah. And that's also why it's so important to have, to be building an arsenal of other coping tools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So why true. would you want to give up something if it's the only thing that's making you feel better? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So as far as trusting your hunger goes, we mentioned a little bit about like identifying the hungers. Mm -hmm. Do you have any steps or pieces of advice for being able to trust your wise hunger? I don't know if this is really going to answer your question. (laughs) I'll just (laughs) share what came to mind as you were asking it. You are having that hunger because it is what is needed next. Mm. Like we don't have hungers for things that we don't need. It's just like food hungers. You're craving that thing because that's the thing you need, whether it's because you need salt or because you need pleasure, whatever. Like our hungers, there's an innate wisdom to them. And so if you believe that, then therein lies the trust that I'm not turning to my brain to figure out what I need or what I should do or what I shouldn't do. I'm trusting that hunger that comes from whatever, gut, soul, whatever, that I'm not having it for no reason. Mm. Yes. I like the parallel there. You know, if you can trust a food craving, Mm -hmm. it's hunger. Those wise hungers are also what's next, what's needed next. So you don't always know why. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, why do I want that? I don't know. It's important not to judge that too, because I think that's one thing I could imagine myself getting caught into or others is, oh, this keeps coming up, but, you know, insert judgment here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I would just, well, you know, this, maybe the trial and error period we talked about before, but the more you live this way, the more you see that Mm -hmm. when you follow those things, you feel fed. And I think I would say, go see, of course, there's, you know, there's another piece of this work, which is to say that our hungers can be fed in many different ways. So sometimes we think, oh, well, I'm hungry for a red convertible or something. And that's like a a surface level hunger that represents something else. And the something else that that represents can be fed in more than one way. And so if it feels like the specific hunger is like, well, I can't go buy a red convertible right now. Do a little drilling down to what it is at the essence of it and then ask yourself, what are five different ways I could start to meet this hunger? Not a hundred percent, 
but just start to meet that hunger. So maybe the convertible represents, right, adventure or freedom or sexiness or whatever, being around cars, who knows? But um, there's more than one way to do that. I think that's also important. Hmm, That's such a helpful piece of advice and kind of a practical thing to think about too. Like, yes, you might be hungry for a red convertible and we want that for you. But if you can cannot access that right now, maybe that hunger can be met in other ways, Yeah, which is, I think, super valuable to keep in mind. It's essential. You know, life is not always perfect and the things we want are not always readily available in exactly the way that they are. But if we can understand like, note to self, I'm hungry for more quiet. Ideally, I would be at this one place that I feel like zen and peaceful at. I can't go there right now, but I'm going to look for pockets this week where I can feed that hunger for quiet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know on a basic level, physical hunger is about getting your needs met. And we're talking about the same exact thing, which is meeting your needs in other ways, emotionally, spiritually, creatively. So. And it's true with food as well. You know, like if you're at an airport and you're really hungry for X food that's not available, what is the best choice I can make from what's available, right? I don't have the perfect thing here, but that doesn't have to mean I don't get anything. You know, I really want this one kind of chocolate bar they don't have, but they can have another kind of chocolate bar and that scratches the itch to some degree. Yeah, I'm so glad you were able to bring this up. And yeah, Rachel, I think that's a... A great note for us to end on is just recognizing like, why do I want this thing? And can I meet this need in another way if necessary? And yeah, so I just appreciate everything you are able to share today, especially your story and all about trusting, you know, what's deeper, what you're looking for in life. It's so valuable for the listeners. So thank you so much. Thank you. For everyone listening, could you please share with the listeners how they can find you or work with you, or if you have anything you'd like to promote coming up, I'd love to make sure they hear about it. Yep. So I'm Rachel W. Cole on Instagram. My website is rachelwcole.com. And I do one-on-one coaching. And then I also do small group intuitive eating mentorships. And there's usually a group forming. So you can apply on my website. Amazing. Well, thank you, Rachel. I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day. Thank you. 